this is what you're fighting for. I mean, every day you're out there. What they're doing is blowing people off. If you continue to look the other way and shut up, then the oppressors, the authoritarians get total control and total power. Because this is just like in Arizona, this is just like in Georgia. It's another element that backs them into a quarter and shows their lies and misrepresentations. This is why this audience is gonna have to get engaged. As we've told you, this is the fight. All this nonsense, all this spin, they can't handle the truth. War Room Battleground. Here's your host, Stephen K. Bannon. Okay, welcome. Wednesday, 19 April, Year of Our Lord, 2023. Uh, very special guest, Larry Swikert, um, the author, well, the co-author of The Patriot's History of the United States and a very special Patriot's History it is. Larry, this is the 15th anniversary. Was the 15th anniversary in the 40th printing? I mean, how many books today go through 40 printings at all? And how many do it in 15 years, sir? Yeah, not very many, Steve. You'll love this one. I found a little factoid that Howard Zinn once said of his people's history, that in its first 10 years, it went through 25 printings and sold over 300,000 copies. Well, in the first 10 years of Patriot's history, we sold over 320,000 copies and went through 27 printings. So uh, I don't know if we're catching him now because so many schools use his book, but um, and, and especially when you consider the book came out in 2004, and it kind of leveled off for a while. And then in 2010, when I was on Glenn Beck's show, when he had a lot of viewers, three and a half million viewers a night, it just exploded. And it's been staying up there ever since. I mean, I thought we were only in our like 30th printing or something. I asked the publisher, where are we now? 40th printing. I mean, that's a lot. Tell, tell me, let's go. I want to compare and contrast. You you kind of wrote it as a response to Howard Zinn. Walk people through the people's history uh, of the United States and uh, and the damage that's done. And then I want to compare sure. and contrast because, as you know, I'm a huge fan of uh, of your book, of the Patriots of the United States, and you got the modern world, all of it. But look, I wanted I wanted the initial when I always thought of it when it first came out was always in comparison to, to Howard Zinn's book. And that's how most people thought it was. And actually, our origins were a little different. We, uh, Mike and I just wanted a textbook that we didn't have to argue against when we taught our U.S. history class. We found that all of the existing textbooks, we were constantly arguing against the book. And that was, that's no way to teach. And we, we'd heard of people's history, but the book wasn't really designed to be an antidote or a, a counter to that because we really didn't know a whole lot about it. We were too busy working on our our own book, and it was huge. You see how big it is behind me. It's a 1,000 pages. And when we turned it into the publisher, it was 2,000 pages. And they go, uh, you have to cut a little bit here. <laughs> so, uh, but we, we did take on all of the lies and all of the mistruths that are in people's history of the United States. Uh, and, and this has affected so many people because as I said, it is on all college campuses. Virtually every college campus will have some U.S. history course that uses people's history of the United States to teach the history. And and it's just rotten in so many ways, I can't even oh, begin oh, oh, to... Oh, hang on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Larry, Larry, it's worse. It's in it's in most high schools, I think. Public yes, high. I see is. people assign this to public people's history to public. And you've got all the celebrities that came out who are all morons, right? But they yes. say you got to read the people's history. The people's history essentially is a work by a Marxist, and it's a Marxist history of the United States. Walk through, walk people through what that means. When, when you have a, somebody that's a Marxist that writes from a Marxist perspective, what do you come up with? Well, as Mike and I said in our introduction to our book, we don't believe in America, my country, right or wrong, but we certainly reject the notion my country always wrong. And that's what the Marxist perspective gives you. When you start with that, the notion is that anything America ever did could not be good, could not be true or honest or noble or right. It was always the result of some uh, capitalist taint, some taint by dead white guys and um, that, that skewed the history into being this, this uh, whitewash of, of what really happened. And so 
to get where he wants to go, and this is very important for your viewers, uh, Zinn had to lie. And he had to lie and lie and lie. And the way he lied most of the time was through the use of a little literary trick called the ellipses. I know you know what this is, but for, for viewers out there who don't know what it is, when you write a sentence and you leave something out, you put three dots to show, hey, I left something out here. Now, the rule of thumb is it's fine to leave something out as long as it doesn't change the meaning. If you leave something out, like the word not, <laughs> if, if you leave something out uh, and it changes the meaning, that's absolutely verboten. That is not acceptable because you're lying. And Zinn did this all the time. Let me give you a real quick example of Columbus. His section on Columbus arriving to meet the Arawak Indians, he, he portrays it as Columbus walks ashore waving his sword and then says, oh, these Indians would make great slaves. And of course, he leaves out all the intermediate stuff that went on. And basically what happened was Columbus arrives with sword in sheath and, and meets with these Indians. And they, they don't all speak the same language, obviously. So they've got to work quite a while on interpreting. And finally, he notices that they have cuts and bruises and so forth. And he says, where did you get those? And they said, another Indian tribe is trying to enslave us. And he, he said, well, they were handsome and strong creatures, and I could see why someone would want to make slaves of them. He was basically saying, well, I can see why those guys were trying to enslave you. And then he goes on, uh, Zinn makes it look like Columbus was threatening them with his sword, when in fact, they didn't have any metal weapons. And they look at his sword and they go, what's that, what's that? And, and he pulls it out and shows it to them. This is a totally different interchange, exchange between Columbus and the Indians and the way Zinn makes it appear, which is this kind of Hitler arriving on the shore with his sword. Let me go. Uh, there's two things that you combat in the Patriots history, and I, I recommend, can we get it up on the screen, Memphis, if we get a chance? The reason I want to do this, and uh, we're going to talk about things that are going on today, too, but I wanted Larry on here. So I'm such a big fan of his in this book. Um, Here's and you see it right there, the 15th anniversary edition. It's in paperback now, so if you want. It. But I I do recommend that all the parents, but and grandparents, particularly if you have a young person that's maybe not to that stage yet, that they're a voracious reader or something like that, to to get this book, uh, because I think they will delve into it, uh, and they will learn a lot. And not just that, the way Mike and Larry have written it, it is it's it's a page turner. It, it's a very it's very accessible. This is not a, it's not a stiff um, academic text. It's not a typical history text. It's incredibly engaging. Larry, I think that's what you and Mike did, Michael did, were, were, which was so powerful, is you made it accessible. It's like you're reading a great narrative history of the country. The other thing that well, came Steve, up, you know, and I Steve, think part of this um, was, an, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, sir. Well, you know, I can't, I just finished a homeschool convention. And we have a full curriculum for high schoolers that goes with this book, including me teaching every chapter in video, 22 chapters, 22 units. You can see this at wildworldofhistory.com. It's my web website, wildworldofhistory.com. Um, but I can't tell you how rewarding it is to have eighth graders, and sometimes even younger, come up and go, oh, I read your book. Such a good book. I love your book. Eighth graders. It, it reads, my phrase is, it reads like butter. It really is a an easy read, despite yes. the imposing nature of the size of the book. You had, uh, and I think the imposing nature actually makes it better, because once people are into it, they go, hey, I can handle reading a big book like this. It gets to be something they can turn around. There's two things. One, you were kind of a counter to Zen, but almost as importantly, and I think you guys, maybe it wasn't at the top of their mind, but you definitely had something to do with it, how powerful this book got in the early 2010, was the 1619 Project. Because yeah. if you want to have a counter, and we've had some great people on that, that, that put up information as a counter, and they're all terrific. But if you want to read a sweeping narrative history of the arc of America for all her faults, and it's really a journey of overcoming these issues. Right. And the conflicts around it and always going next level. Walk me through the 1619 project. How does that compare and contrast to the story we, we read in um, in uh, the Patriots history? 
Well, 1619 Project, in a nutshell, says that America is not exceptional because America had slaves beginning in 1619 in Virginia. And, and what we argue in Patriots history is from the four pillars of American exceptionalism. Pillar one, a Christian, mostly Protestant, religious tradition, which is important not for reasons of theology, but because of the bottom-up nature of the pilgrims and the Puritans and most of the early sects, the Quakers, who settled here, they were bottom-up religion. Number two is a common law, which is a bottom-up way of doing government. That is, God puts the law in the hearts of the people. This is mentioned twice in the Bible, once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament. God puts the law in the hearts of the people, and they select or elect leaders to carry that out. Pillar number three is um, private property with written titles and deeds, something much of Africa still doesn't have today. And number four is a free market economy. You'll notice what word was left out of that. Slavery. Slavery appears nowhere in the four pillars of American exceptionalism because, A, it was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. Everybody had slaves, and the Muslims at the time were the largest slave traders in the world. And B, it had nothing to do with the other four pillars, uh, the most important of which were the first two, the ground-up religion and the bottom-up governance. And so that's why we argue that Plymouth and not Jamestown was really the focus of America's founding. And, and therefore, the 1619 Project, is it's irrelevant. Because, James, walk me through that. Why do you, being a Virginian, I remember as a young, uh, a young boy, it was always this huge controversy every Thanksgiving. This is back in the 50s and the 60s. Yeah. Who had the first Thanksgiving? Who was really the founder of Jamestown? As you grow older, you, you realize that Jamestown is a group of freebooters, right? Entrepreneurs, <laughs> we'll call them, freebooters. And, and Plymouth was really a, a, an incredible, and I got to tell you, the, they're, both of the stories are incredible because they barely hung on. But um, right. the Plymouth thing is extraordinary. But why do you say that Plymouth is more important? Why is the bottom up and the religious nature of it more important than the more entrepreneurial uh, freebooter uh, element of the American spirit? Well, the uh, Jamestown, of course, did not have any uh, bottom up religion. All anyone who was religious was an Anglican, and that's top down. Um, also, they they didn't have common law. They were governed by the uh, London Company who was in turn governed by the king. But on the Mayflower, before they even get off the boat, they, they select their own governor and they say, all right, we got these guys called strangers. They're not pilgrims. They're not Puritans. We're going to make them equal. And that was unheard of in human history that you would make other people who didn't necessarily have the same rights you thought you had and just give them your rights as well. So it's those two bottom-up elements that I think make um, Plymouth the heartland, the cradle of Is that incorporated in the Mayflower Compact? They, they basically yes. understood they needed some governing instrument, and in doing that, the strangers who were some of the sailors right. and other people that weren't part of the sect itself, they gave them equal status in that, and then everybody had to pull together. Right. And... and um, they call themselves a body politic, uh, which is kind of interesting, uh, an interesting phrase. And of course, you know, the first thing they did was they, they told the king that they weren't engaged in treason because they were on in the wrong spot. Oh, great king, buddy, pal, listen, man, we didn't mean to be here. And, and please don't draw and quarter us. And, and then they went into the whole uh, governance thing. Um, but as you mentioned, both colonies did suffer incredibly from their stupidity in accepting a socialist form of economics when they got off the boat. And, and of course, at Jamestown, after the second winter, they had the starving time where the diaries reflect that the people were eating rats and dung and shoelaces. And, you know, my wife and I love these cooking shows like Chopped, and you get the market basket of goods, and, oh, look what we have here, rat, <laughs> dung shoelaces and a rock and of course you know the, the cooks always know well i'm great i know what i'm doing with that i'm gonna make a rat puree over over baked dung <laughs> no anyway but um and they both colonies quickly threw out socialism uh jamestown within two years and uh plymouth within one year 
William Bradford said he was speaking about socialism, and he said, it is though we thought we were wiser than God to adopt socialism. Walk me through, you know, he's talked about the first two, the Christian, it's not about theology. You're saying a bottoms up, not, not the Catholicism, not Anglican, which is really a spinoff, not these religions that really are, have a priest cast and it, and it kind of comes down from the top and, and you're, it's nothing, it has nothing to do with your religious beliefs or how holy you are or how close to God, just the difference. When you say bottom up there in English common law of being bottom up there, not, not, uh, not looking at the law, the commercial law of the British East India Company or any of these, the Virginia Company, whatever's put together that, that goes back to the king, he gets his 20% off the top, then you divvy up the rest. What the big is guy, it, right? Um, <laughs> the big guy. You, you, would, you would think that that would lay out populism. And today, you know, we're talking about this populist nationalist movement, really MAGA's kind of taking over the Republican Party. And all we talk about populism, we talk about Andrew Jackson. Are you saying, and we listed the four, you said the first two were really the driving forces of American exceptionalism. Is that because American exceptionalism was predicated upon what we would refer to as populism? I think that's fair. I mean, you look at, at these guys, they, um, they created a system in which um, not only were they equal, but they said, we are so equal that we think that that even if you pose a slight threat, not not a mortal threat, but a slight threat to our theology or our way of life, we aren't going to kill you. We aren't even going to torture you. We're just going to say you got to go someplace else. You can't stay here. And, and so that's what we see with Roger Williams and Ann Hutchinson and so many others. Is the Puritans unlike any other? group in history, including many Protestant churches in Europe, they didn't burn you at the stake because you were, in their view, a heretic. They just said, nah, that doesn't fly here. Go someplace else. And so how about Rhode Island? Yeah, that's a good place. Go to Rhode Island. What, uh, one of the things that, not criticisms, observation is that, and you see in your book, it has been from the beginning, there was definitely a conflict between the white settlers that came in the in the Aborigines or the or the the Native Americans that were here from the constant. What I don't I think that critics of this miss the point that the the Native Americans the Indians were very sophisticated. They had a very sophisticated of their own foreign policy. They had series of alliances and networks and either enslaving other tribes. But from the very purse, you see it in in Plymouth and you see it in Virginia, and it rolls throughout the entire history of really till the I guess the 1880s, that the Indians have a very sophisticated, and it comes up in the, in the, in the French, and Amer French uh, Indian Wars where you had these alliances, right? The, the Iroquois and the Hurons. Talk to us about that. Talk to us about the sophistication sure. of how, whether it was Pontiac or Tecumseh, they, they, they had an incredibly sophisticated view of how they dealt with each other. And the whites were just part of that, with the Mexicans in the, in the Southwest and the whites that came in on the Eastern seaboard. Well, and, and this is, um, as you rightly say, this is reflected in their alliances. And at first, none of them thought the whites would be the power to worry about. Uh, to them, we were, we were a new group. The whites were usurpers, but no different to the Hurons than the Mohicans, or no different to the Mohicans than the Iroquois. And as you, you mentioned, the, the far west, as you get further west, you see very shocking uh, wars between the Sioux and the Cheyenne. And what's so astounding, you know, one of the great heroes uh, in American history is Chief Sitting Bull of the Sioux. And what he did that was so astounding was that he allied <clears throat> all five of the Sioux tribes who didn't get along together, and somehow he got the Cheyenne, their hated enemy, to join in the alliance as well against Custer and Terry and some of the rest. So there's a book th that we uh, source on this, uh, a fairly recent book, uh, called The Middle Ground by uh, Richard White. <clears throat> and he makes this very argument that the Indians were constantly playing one tribe off against the other, against the whites, against the Spanish, whoever it was, 
it was just um, think of Bavaria uh, or, or, or one of the smaller Saxony, one of the small German states uh, in the border between Prussia and France and, and Austria trying to stay alive. And that's the way most of these Indian confederations were. And by the way, Steve, you know, talking about sophistication, we always hear how the, the Dutch swindled the Indians out of Long Island for uh, trinkets and blankets worth only a few hundred dollars. But you've got to remember two things. One is the Indians uh, in that area, like the Plains Indians, had no sense of private property and land. That is, they did not think it was possible for a human to actually own land. And of course, when fences go up, they go, what, what's going on here? This isn't right. So second thing is, they did not have iron. They did not have skillets. They did not have some of the finer woven blankets and stuff or, or cloths that were being exchanged to them. In other words, the Indians thought they were getting the better of that deal. We're getting all this stuff you can actually possess, and we're trading away what was to them rights to the air. I want to go. There's another thing in the book that comes up in, in American history. I don't think it's discussed enough. Is this? There's a tendency, in particular certain parts of the country, for these massive religious revivals, and it's upstate New York. I think they call it the Burnt Over District. I mean, if you look at the number of religions and sects that come out of there. If you study world history, it's pretty amazing that certain parts of North America with the settlers have come up with the, you know, uh, there's dozens and dozens. I think New York State has generated, I don't know, uh, a half a dozen to 12 major religious uh, movements and sects. What is it about that? What is it about this country? What is it about the land? What is it about the, the, the structure of society that led, in, particularly in the 18th and 19th, early 19th century, mid-19th century, the formation of so many of these religious movements? Well, that's, that's a good question. You know, it, it's very interesting in that it ties into our adaptation of the very language. Uh, we have a language called American that is nothing like English. And it starts very early in the early 1700s. And, and you begin to incorporate foreign words such as boss from the Dutch, uh, later, lasso, lariat, patio from the Spanish, or portage, or cash, or crevasse from the French, or from um, black slaves, caucus, or mass meeting. And so a lot of our language uh, starts to also come out of our religious experience there. So we had uh, campfire meeting, and these are especially popular in the um, Carolinas area where preachers would go out and just hold a church service in, in a forest around a campfire. And this goes back to the bottom up, right? Because you didn't have to wait to be an ordained minister. If you could read the Bible and you could convince people that your interpretation of it was pretty sound, people would follow you. And you would have a church, which is really where Methodism grows in America, is in these campfire meetings. So you get up to New York, and, and you've got, again, this guy Joseph Smith goes out and he says, hey, I found these tablets. I'm going to tell a compelling tale top to bottom, believe it or not. And, and he develops the, the uh, Church of Latter-day Saints. And you've got Seventh-day Adventists. You've got Christian scientists all coming out of this. Well, why? Because it's, it's all bottom up. It, it's all coming from the people. It's not being directed top down. And, and when you, you made that comment about um, uh, people coming over here uh, almost like criminals, I forget your exact phrase, I was thinking, well, sort of like Australia, right? We're, we're, we're almost like Australia. But, but indeed, the, the, the church experience was based on this idea of independence that laity could lead church services and meetings in a very democratic manner. Of course, that's exactly what the Quakers are. Anyone can stand up and speak, and, and no one is addressed as sir, and that, that kind of thing. How big, a, how big a figure in your page, how big a figure is Andrew Jackson? In, in the midst of time, he's kind of considered, you know, bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson when President Trump embraced him. People were shocked. Uh, back when you read those histories, he's as big as Washington and Lincoln. In, in the Patriots' history, in your arc, tell me about Jackson and, and populism and the, particularly the anti 
Federal Reserve or the anti-bank of the United States, central bank uh, idea that he had. He hated central banks. He hated bankers. Right. Well, Jackson gets almost a full chapter in, in our book. Um, surprisingly, people think that Jackson shrank government. He did not. Uh, government grew every year under Jackson, maybe not as fast, but it still grew, um, grew per capita, grew in total dollar terms. Um, Jackson's a very strange guy. He um, leads these Indian campaigns in Florida, and then right before um, the Battle of New Orleans, he leads an Indian uh, campaign against the Creek Indians, known as the Red Sticks. <clears throat> and he very much detests many of the Indians because he thinks they allied with the British in the American Revolution. He is opposed to some banks. And, and we argue that it's a myth that he hated all banks because he takes the money out of the Bank of the United States and puts it in a whole bunch of his friends' banks. He was just against the BUS <laughs> because it was in the wrong hands. It was in the hands of the Whigs, and he wanted to take away their money and put it in the hands of the Democrats. Uh, Bank of the United States, and this was my specialty back in grad school. My PhD is really in economic history. But the Bank of the United States was not a central bank. The government only owned 20 percent of it. They didn't really direct much of, of anything. And most of all, the bankers and the people were very happy. Hang on for one second, Larry. We're going to take a short commercial break. We're back. It's the uh, 15th anniversary, the 40th printing of a seminal work in the MAGA movement. That would be the Patriots' history of the United States. We're going to be back in the warm in just a second. Starting the new year, how will you prepare yourself, friends, and family? In the news, you're seeing constant government overreach, attacks on our communication and energy grid, worldwide conflicts, natural disasters, and the never-ending assault on our security and privacy. And relying on your cell phone in these scenarios simply won't cut it. That's why over the last year, I've been partnering with Satellite Phone Store to help you stay prepared and ensure your vital communications stay prior. They're one of America's largest satellite companies with thousands of happy, well-prepared customers. For a limited time, Satellite Phone Store has a special promotional offer when you go to sat123.com slash Bannon. That is sat, S-A-T, 123.com slash Bannon. Get a bivy stick or an Imarsat satellite phone included with an annual agreement. Remember, that's you get a bivy stick or a Marsat satellite phone included with an annual agreement. Now, Satellite Phone Store's customer support team is located in the United States of America and can help you pick the best plan for you. Go to sat.com right now. That's sat123.com slash Bannon. Sat123.com slash Bannon. And get your device today. Don't put it off. Life can change in an instant. That is sat123.com slash Bannon, sat123.com slash Bannon. Get it today. Take action, action, action. In my younger days, I was a naval officer on a destroyer. In fact, I was the A-gang officer in charge of all the engineering systems that were not main propulsion. And one of those was air purification. And I can tell you the standards of the United States Navy are second to none. If all home air purifiers are the same, why did the U.S. Department of Defense select EnviroCleanse to protect and purify the air on board our Navy ships? Because EnviroCleanse, advanced mineral technology, goes beyond ordinary HEPA filters to destroy airborne illness-causing cold and flu viruses, including COVID. EnviroCleanse is the new science in air purification, and now you can order one for your home. This is how you help stop colds and flus from taking your whole family down. This is how you destroy allergy and flaming toxins and mold from the air your family breathes. In fact, this hospital-grade technology is so powerful that it promises far fewer colds and allergies and better sleep. Visit ekpure.com. That's ekpure.com and use the code STEVE for 10% off your EnviroCleanse home purification unit. You also receive a free air quality monitor, plus fast, free shipping. 
That's $150 savings right there. That's ekpure.com, code Steve. ekpure.com, code Steve. COVIDtaxrelief.org got a small retail business almost $80,000. COVIDtaxrelief.org got a manufacturing business nearly two hundred and fifty grand. And COVIDtaxrelief.org just got a large distribution business almost $900,000. If you run a business, church, or nonprofit and paid your employees through all or part of the pandemic, you could qualify for up to $26,000 per employee through the government's CARES Act. But beware of clickbait or pay upfront companies who make you do the work and take a huge percentage of your refund. COVIDtaxrelief.org receives a low reasonable commission only after you receive your refund. And with 300 CPAs and tax experts, no one is better at getting you the maximum benefit than COVIDtaxrelief.org. Visit COVIDtaxrelief.org now because this plan expires soon. That's COVIDtaxrelief.org, COVIDtaxrelief.org. The refund examples are not a guarantee and not all businesses qualify. That's why you have to check today with COVIDtaxrelief.org. War Room Battleground with Stephen K. Bannon. Of the Patriots' history of the United States, its 15th anniversary, its 40th printing. Larry, uh, for particularly our, our young charges uh, that are going to get this now from their parents uh, at a thousand pages, you know that you're getting a book when you get this, right? There's no doubt. It's a, it's a, it's a hefty title. But you, uh, you shocked me. And, by, and this is, I think I've done this three or four times with Larry. I love him. He's such a great storyteller um, that I love having him on. Um, you cut a thousand pages out. First off, how did you and Michael decide that? And where did that get rolled into the modern history? Or is that thousand pages always could be a supplement we could republish? I mean, how did you figure out how to do that? That's not easy. Dealing with it's authors not, before, I can tell you, get it, getting to take in 20 pages out is, is, <laughs> is like pulling teeth. Well, remember, our purpose was to get a textbook that we thought we could use to teach with. And we didn't think we were going to get a publisher. We thought we'd print it and bind it and sell it out of the back of a van or maybe along with other banned items such as plastic straws in California, you know. Buddy, plastic straws, Patriots history. <laughs> but uh, um, There were lots of vignettes and, and character studies such as Mike Fink, King of the River, and uh, just dozens of uh, Indian chiefs and so on. Um, all sorts of people throughout history that we would, we would give a page or a page and a half of kind of a character study or a business study to. So all of those went. All the sidebars, except I think two of them, went. And, and that chopped a lot. Um, <clears throat> but the rest of the material, a lot of it can be found on the wildworldofhistory.com website. If you look around under the blogs and some of the other things there, I put many, many of these things in little... Um, one to one and a half page uh, vignettes uh, that are free, free on the site. So just go to wildworldofhistory.com and, and look around there. And um, even then, when we turned it into the publisher, it was still about 1,200 pages. And the editor there took out 200. And even then, she said, we got to get another, I forget what she said, 2,000 words out of it. And she couldn't figure out how to do it, so he sent it to an outside editor who cut it yet again and actually made it work. And remember this, for, for all the people that are watching this, uh, every time I update it or Mike and I update this thing, we got to cut more stuff because we're adding more stuff. So it, it's, it's always a battle wow. for a historian. What do you cut out? You, you were like two questions. I got. Well, number one, you were the first, one of the first guys I know that saw the potential in Trump, in Trumpism. Well, given your understanding of the arc of American history, why was, when Trump came on the scene, why, not his presidency, but why was the beginning of the Trump movement something that you could see the resonance of? Well, that's easy, because in, uh, in the Bush administration, 
what we saw was that the elites tried to ram through amnesty. And for the first time in my memory, the people stood up and said, no, absolutely not. They so flooded Congress with phone calls and angry telegrams and letters and emails. If you remember this, they had to pull the amnesty bill that Bush and Congress supported. I mean, that's a big win right there. That was, I know they've, they've gotten around it in other ways, but that was a big win at that time. So, and being here in Arizona, even though I was living in Ohio at the time, but I, I'm acutely aware of the impact of illegal immigration. So when I saw Trump in, um, it was less than a month after he announced, here in Phoenix, I was on vacation here in Phoenix, and I saw that his speaking venue had been moved from a, a, the Phoenician Hotel, which held like 200, to the Phoenix Convention Center, which held thousands. I knew he was on to something. And based on what I kept hearing people talk about, it was illegal immigration. Now, it might not be quite the issue today that it was in 16, but in 16, that was a huge issue. And Trump was over here and there were 16 other candidates on the other side of the stage. And there was no question in my mind that he had achieved the high moral ground on the illegal immigration debate. How does his, I know it's too early for a historian to be able to place it, but is your first cut? His his first term, his his presidency to date. We know he's coming back after a tough slog for a second term. But where do you put him in the in the in the in the in the arc of uh, of presidents and and the country? Is your first cut? Well, prior to China virus, prior to twenty twenty, I would have had him in the top five in terms of what he achieved. Number one. What he achieved relative to what he said he was going to do, which is at the top of everybody except George Washington. I mean, he achieved almost everything he said he was going to do, or he got it as far as he could possibly get it uh, with Congress before they would block him. Uh, then the China virus hit, and, and that caused him uh, a number of problems. Most notably, he had to make a choice whether to advance the vaccine or let it run its course. And I know what he was being advised by everybody. It's the same thing Bush was being advised in 2002, which was the WMDs are there. Everybody says they're going to kill millions. You got to take them out. And he was, Trump was being besieged by this same thing. This virus will kill 20 million Americans if you don't hit it and hit it hard. And, and so he briefly, for a period of about six months, kind of fell into that. And that damaged him. But more important, the lockdowns allowed the Democrat Party to engage in massive widespread cheating that we had never seen before. Um, the other thing that you have to rate presidents on, I'm sorry, it's like winning in the playoffs. You know, oh, Dallas Cowboys have a great team. Well, how many Super Bowls have they won since the 90s? None. OK, they don't have a great team. Uh, you've got to win elections. And even if it was by fraud, Trump lost. And, and so you can't. Give him an A for his first presidential term. I give him an A minus or B plus uh, because of the China virus response and the fact that um, he he had some responsibility in the fraud in not seeking it out and and attacking it earlier than he did beforehand. But yeah, the mail-in back, ballots. You know? You're saying you're saying yeah. you're you're Washington, Lincoln, Jackson. I take it Reagan, FDR. Is the top five? Uh, you're saying all of those won re-election. That that's one of the. If you want to get in that upper tier, you, whether they steal it or not, you got to have the. You got to right. check it off. That and look, we're the adamant that he won, right? Yeah. But unfortunately, he's yep. not at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Was stolen. Let me. Um, and, and by the I, way, I, I my top go, five but today. My top yeah. five uh, would yeah. be Washington. Nobody can top Washington for what he did for this country. Lincoln, and then number three, I have Reagan. Yeah. And then number four, I've got Calvin Coolidge, who gave us five years of peace oh, and God. prosperity and got reelected. <laughs> and, and then I would probably put, you know, Trump up there right close, close to that. And, and Grover Cleveland. Larry is a hardcore. You're a you're a hardcore. You're a, you're a former libertarian, correct? You got to you got to <laughs> if you got Calvin Coolidge, you got to be a libertarian. You're killing I love me. silent. Cal. My you man know, the Jackson does. For, for, for your. Viewers who don't know Calvin Coolidge, you got to read about this guy. He was he was literally born on the Fourth of July, right? And um, he's known as Silent Cal because he just didn't say a whole lot. He just got immediately to the nub of the issue and shut up. 
And so he's at a dinner party one night, and this woman looks over and says, Mr. President, I, I bet you a dollar I can get you to say more than three words. And he looks at her and he says, you lose. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was, by the way, the people that love him and have studied it love him. I, I know there's a number of, of, there's a Calvin Coolidge Society, there's been a number of books, people that love him, love him. Today, when you look at the transgender ideology, when you look at the invasion on the southern border, when you look at what has happened geopolitically that now we're in a war, the Eurasian landmass with what I call the Legion of Doom, China, Russia, Persia, you know, Saudi Arabia. When you look at what's happened to you're an economic historian, you look at what's happening in the in the de-dollarization, the, the spending, the debt out of control, the Federal Reserve really as a backstop that just keeps printing money, everything that's just happened since the Biden regime has come in. Give, put that in the arc. I keep saying if the, if the particularly the concentration of wealth, if, if the framers came back and are founding, the, if the revolutionary generation, number one, and then the framers, because they were kind of two different groups, came back today, they would spit on the floor of what we have allowed to happen to this great republic. I'd like your thoughts, sir. No, that, that's right. I mean, if you look objectively, and of course, no Democrat can be objective. Uh, but if you looked objectively and you said, if somebody deliberately wanted to destroy this nation, would they have done anything different than what Joe Biden, as I affectionately call him, the rutabaga, as, as would they have done anything different than what he has done? And the answer is no. He, he hasn't done one thing to make America stronger, and every single thing he has done has made us weaker. And then you mentioned the kind of trans movement. Uh, I sensed a couple of years ago that that was going to be a, a serious, serious focal point and maybe the tipping point in the war against woke. And I think we're, we're seeing that finally appear everywhere from the, the uh, public disdain of Disney and how its recent movies have all, they haven't crashed. But none of them have made their money back, and none of them are going to be money winners, whether it's Ant-Man, whether it's the DC version, which is uh, you know Black Adam or, or uh, Shazam. And then you look at movies today that have no woke message at all, whether it's Jesus Revolution, which has made an astounding $153 million on an investment of under $500,000. Are you kidding me? Or, or you look at um, John Wick. Four, which is a $350 million, or you look at the Mario Brothers movie, which in one weekend has eclipsed Ant-Man, and none of these have an ounce of woke in them. So people are really battling back, and, and our most recent, which everybody knows about, was the Bud Light fiasco, where this idiot mid-level executive, uh, all, these people all come from marketing and human relations. And, and you, you get this person out there that puts a transoid as the uh, as the face of Bud Light. And it's just but, but the, the person, backlash. Yeah, but, 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 but these, these big corporations have been all into this gay pride and all into the rainbow thing for a long time. It's, yep. zero, that, it's zero probability she made the decision. That went up to the chain. That went up the chain. Command. They're all saying now, oh, we didn't do it. It's some. Yep. I, I've only got 10 minutes. I got to do two things. Number one. The Patriots history of the modern world, the Patriots history itself uh, technically cuts off when. When do you stop? This book ends when? And then you've got two volumes later, the Patriots history of the modern world. So where does Patriots history leave us? And then where do you pick up on the Patriots history of the modern world, which is a separate book, separate two volumes? Okay. So Patriots history of the United States goes up to 2018 in this edition. I have been working on and, and have updated the period 2018 to 23. I will make it available free. On the wildworldofhistory.com website, probably sometime later this summer, it's basically one new chapter, a big chapter, and a lot of inserted stuff that we had to take out earlier in various places. So you can kind of read along and read the book and then read what's on the web and PDF and insert it yourself. Patriots History of the Modern World came about in 2012 and 13. And again, it was so big, it was about 1,500 pages when we turned it in. They made us break it into two books, volume one, volume two. And actually, those cut off a little bit sooner than Patriots History of the United States, because when, when we finished those, is about 2013, and Patriots History of the United States cuts off at 2018. Um, and okay. so uh, I will be updating but that. But you, you're, 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 you're able to do a more in-depth 
look at the modern world, whereas Patriots history may be a yeah. little more condensed than that. You're able to do a more thing. I know you've oh, been very Lennon funny. Marks, we'll is come back and have Gandhi. Is Lyndon Marks, Gandhi, all, oh, the, love to have you. all the big names, right? Yes. Um, you have been very focused. I've known you for a number of years since before the first Trump victory back in my Breitbart days. You have been very focused, as many of us have, on globalization. And I know you're working on a big project. I don't know if we want to announce it now, maybe later, but sure. walk me through globalization, your, your take on globalization and, and the impact that's had on American history. Well, first thing people need to understand, as with all things, nothing is new under the sun. Uh, Solomon said that uh, globalism is not a new phenomenon. The Congress of Vienna in 1814 was the first meeting of the globalists. And of course, on the outside, they were supposed to be meeting to just reconstruct Europe after Napoleon. But everybody in Europe, kind of more of the common people, thought that they were going to undertake a, a major uh, attempt to get rid of monarchs and put in place representative governments. And that didn't happen at all. Uh, one of the uh, advisors to Metternich, uh, one of the four big names at the Congress of Vienna, said uh, they think we're up here to give power to the people, but basically we're up here to carve up Europe like a turkey. And and so you can. Uh, Hold on. Is this why? Is this why? Is this why Henry Kissinger loves Metternich so much and wrote his yes. thesis? His first book was on yes. Metternich. Is this? Is this why Henry and, and he thinks con- loves he uh, thinks loves the Congress? The Congress- he thinks that's a great thing that they did. And he says, you know, they ushered in an era of peace. I get he forgot about the Crimean War and the Franco-Prussian War, merely two major wars in the next 50 years. I mean, yeah, that's that's peace. All right. But we could jump up to Versailles, which most of your viewers know about in trying to reestablish uh, Europe after World War One. And literally Wilson and, and George Clemenceau and David Lloyd George were huddled around maps bending over, as one observer said, like a giant gorilla in an ivory suit. And they're moving boundaries and they're moving map lines and they're literally moving millions of people who are contained in these lines without any regard to national ethnicity or, or heritage or anything else. And they're creating thousands of problems as, as they do this. But again, they were playing God. They thought they could play God. And, and you can then go up to the post-World War II era where the scientists championed a global body to take care of nuclear weapons, atomic weapons, and, and they thought that only this global body would be able to control the spread of these weapons. And gee, maybe that global body should be run by scientists. And so I, I carry this new book, um, Patriot's History of Globalism, Its Rise and Decline. I carry that all the way up to the present, and we are seeing some evidence of the decline of globalism. These guys are on their heels. Give me, uh, when the time we get about four minutes left, I want your perspective of a lot of people in our audience, uh, obviously we're the, you know, the, it's the platform for MAGA. We've got all these activists, fighters every day, but I do get every now and again a thing, hey, I, it feels so terrible for the country. I want to give up. I just don't see any hope. The forces arrayed against us, arrayed against <laughs> patriots and sovereigntists are so great. What, what are your words of wisdom for us, understanding the deep roots and the history of this country from from the early, uh, what, the early 17th, uh, the early 16th century. Well, to quote uh, the Black Knight after both his arms and both his legs were cut off, I've had worse. <laughs> you know, we've been in worse shape. We, we've actually almost fallen to the British. They, they'd actually captured Washington, D.C. Um, the Civil War, uh, we, we came within one battle of losing that and becoming two nations. Uh, there were times in World War II, right before the Battle of Midway, that it looked like the Allies might actually lose and we'd have to negotiate a peace with Hitler. So, so one answer is uh, we've been here before and uh, history has a way of surprising people and has a way of turning on a dime. But I would say a more important message is the message that Gandalf gives to the little hobbit when they're on the ramparts there in the final battle of Minas Tirith, and they're looking at, and there's there's tens and tens of thousands of, of orcs everywhere, and the, the little hobbit basically says, we can't win this, can we? And, and Gandalf looks down, and he says, no, we can't. But sometimes those are the, the most important battles to fight. 
Now, I think we can win it, but even if we couldn't, this is the most important battle we have to fight. We have to fight it sometime. Why not now? As Kennedy said, if not us, who? If not now, when? Larry, how do people get to all your content? How do they get all this? Okay, so we've got wildworldhistory.com. We have a great book offer now uh, on the presidents, which is Patriots History and Reagan, the American President, and Dragon Slayers, in which I interviewed you several times. And um, we've got an ongoing Buy Larry a Coffee program. We're going to make Patriots History into a movie by hook or by crook. And, and there will be a place on there where you can buy Larry a coffee for five bucks. Every dime goes into the movie fund. And so if you don't see it there, email me at Larry at wildworldofhistory.com, and I'll give you the, the coffee link, but you can get everything, including the two out-of-print volumes of Patriots History, the Modern World, in PDF on the wildworldofhistory.com. Larry, it's been, uh, it's been an honor to have you on here. Congratulations uh, as a counter to Howard Zinn. Uh, 15 years, the 15th anniversary, 40 printings. And you're still grinding away and still a great, uh, great storyteller and a great spirit and uh, a, a, a huge, the MAGA movement has its own historians, so uh, in-house historians. So thank you. Honored to have you on here, sir. Thank you, Steve. Okay. Uh, we're going to be back. Uh, we'll be back live again tomorrow, 10 a.m. Uh, it'll be as heated as anything you've seen. There's so much going on in the world today. I've never seen a news cycle like this, and it's only going to get more intense and more intense and more intense. And that's why, uh, you know, one thing I didn't get a chance to ask Larry, but I'll have him back on in the weeks and talk about artificial intelligence, transhumanism, uh, the convergence into the, uh, uh, in, into, into all this, to the singularity, the point, you know, homo sapiens on this side, homo sapiens plus on the other, a massive major inflection point in all of human history. We'll be back at 10 o'clock, maybe the more, I don't say mundane, but uh, more nuts and bolts of the modern world and your place in it when we return tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. in the world.